thanks again for being here. Welcome to Bayou City. If you want to pull out a Bible, you want to pull out your listening guide that you received when you came in, I would like for you to write some things down that we might be encouraged by them. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. As I've mentioned before, the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has two primary goals in writing this letter. First, to illustrate the superiority of Jesus. We've already seen in Hebrews that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament law. He's superior to the Old Testament priests. He's superior to the Old Testament traditions. He surpasses everyone and everything. The second goal is to encourage these first century Christians to remain faithful in the face of opposition. Because they would go to church on Sundays and on the way they would be publicly ridiculed. On their way to church, some of them would be thrown into jail. Sometimes they would make it to church, and on their way home, they would realize that someone had come and stolen all of their possessions. So you can imagine that there were more than a few who were deciding, is this worth it? Is this new faith that I have really worth all of this opposition? And I'm guessing that there's more than a few of us today who are asking the same question. Is following Jesus really worth all of this? Is it worth trying to be pure and single in 2018? Is it worth enduring this marriage that I'm in, even though I'm not getting back from my spouse what I am putting in? Is it worth being generous with my money, even though I could be spending that on myself? Is it, is it, worth, is it worth forgiving people, even though they've hurt me? And so I'm guessing that at least some of us are asking that today. And in response to that, we have Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You can see in your listening guide, there are four encouragements that I want us to take today. Number one, don't quit. Others have made it. Find yourself on the fence today or on the fence in the future. Is this really worth it? Don't quit because others have made it. Verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the Greeks would use that word cloud to describe a group since we are surrounded by a group of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Well, in the previous chapter, we were introduced to them. They are the heroes of the Hall of Fame of Faith. People like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Rahab. They're the cloud of witnesses, the group of witnesses. And what are they witnessing to? They're testifying to the truth that the reward is great and we should keep on enduring now, we may say, yeah, but they are literally saints, like literally saints. People make statues of them. They remember these people. I remember when I was in college, I was interning at a church, and there was a legend about one of its members that when she was talking to you, she was talking to you, but she was also praying for you at the same time. And I don't know whether that was actually true, but I, I do remember when she was talking with you, you could be talking about anything, she would look you deeply into the eyes and it felt like she was peering into my soul. I was 19 years old. I didn't want anybody peering into my soul. And I remember thinking, I can't imagine being like that. I can imagine loving Jesus. I can imagine being committed, but I, I don't know if I can imagine being that committed. 
or, or being that kind of person. And we may feel that way about these saints in Hebrews chapter 11, Moses and the rest. Well, yeah, they're a cloud of witnesses, but I could never be like them. But when you start reading their stories, they're a lot more like us than we would first imagine. You know, Abraham was awesome. He was also a liar. I don't mean he just lied one time and somebody wrote it down. I mean, he lied all the time. He passed that down to his grandson, Jacob, who was great and also a manipulator. Abraham's wife, Sarah, the mother of Israel, when she heard a promise from God, she scoffed in skepticism. Moses was the rescuer of God's people, and yet he had an anger problem. We see it consistently through his life. These people are really more like us than we would first believe, and they're the cloud of witnesses testifying to the truth that if they could make it, then we can make it. Second thing I want you to write down, don't quit, run free. Don't quit, run free. Verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. That word weight is something bulky, something hard or awkward to carry. You can picture somebody walking, trying to carry something really big. And the idea of laying down that weight is the idea of taking off your coat and laying your coat aside. When I was in middle school, I had one goal, and that was to be on the varsity basketball team at my high school one day. We would go to their games occasionally on Friday nights in the winter, and uh, you know I played basketball, and so it really wasn't that part that stirred something in me. It was when the basketball team, the varsity team was getting ready to run out, the pet band would begin to play Eye of the Tiger. That was our mascot. We were the Tigers. And there, there, in the history of the world, no one's ever been able to just be cool and listen to Eye of the Tiger. It just does something to you. And so I remember feeling that way and then watching this basketball team run out and they had warm-ups on. You know, they had the warm-up jacket on, they had the warm-up pants on. On my middle school team, you didn't get any of that. They just got the jersey with your, you know, spaghetti arms flinging everywhere. But these guys, they, they had the warm-ups and, and right before the game would start, the starting five, they would rip off their warm-ups, like literally rip off their pants and take off their jacket. And then they did the most amazing thing. They would just throw it on the ground. Right. And somebody would magically come and pick it up. I was like, I want to be served like that one day. And I want to run out to this song. But imagine one of those starters not ripping off his coat and ripping off his warm-up pants. Just, just, he just decided he was going to play the whole game in his warm-ups. I mean, there's not anything wrong with that. But we would say, why would you do that? That's actually going to make it harder for you than if you just did what you were supposed to. That's the idea of this weight. It reminds me of 1 Samuel chapter 17. David is getting ready to confront Goliath. Goliath has been taunting God's people and David, who's still a teenager at this time, probably says, I'll, I'll go out there and I'll speak up and defend God's people. And so King Saul brings him over and it says this in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. I mean, King Saul did what any of us would do if we were him. If you're going to go out and fight Goliath, at least let me put this armor on you. 
At least let me try to protect you. And David tries it on, but he says, I don't need any of this. This is actually hurting me. It seems like it should be helping me, but it's hurting me. When Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to lay aside every weight, that weight is any good thing which does not help me do what God has called me to do. It's any good thing that does not help me do what God has called me to do. For some of us, that might be entertainment. The entertainment that we're watching, maybe it's, it's not bad. Maybe it's good, but maybe the quantity of the entertainment has become a weight. Maybe it's our possessions. There's nothing wrong with having possessions. We see people throughout the scripture. Some are poor, some are rich. Lots of people in between. Maybe the quantity of possessions or the focus on our possessions, even though not wrong in and of themselves, have become a weight to us that we have to lay aside. I think, I think there's one thing that unites all of us this morning, even though we're at different points in our process of becoming spiritually mature. I think we deeply hunger and thirst for God. To know God, not not just to know about him, but to experience him. It's the heart of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, I count everything as loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I think we're all united by that. I read recently an author saying that you cannot go ahead with God and stay where you are. And it's that weight good things which do not help me do what God has called me to do that keeps me where I am even though I want to go on with God. We have to lay it aside. Number three, don't quit, be free. Don't quit, be free. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If those weights slow us down, sin brings us down. What is sin? Uh, Sin is any willful, accidental, or ignorant rebellion against God. Willful, accidental, or ignorant rebellion against God. That's what sin is. Sometimes it's willful. The prodigal son willfully rebelled against his father when he went and said, I want my share of the inheritance that's going to come to me when you die. I want it right now. He intentionally took that money and went off to a far country, leaving his father's house. He intentionally spent that money on what the Bible calls wild living. He willfully did that. And we willfully rebel against God. God says to do this and we say, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. And we do that something else. Like not to pick on anybody in general. I'm not thinking of anybody specifically, but the, the scripture says that sex is supposed to be in the boundaries of marriage, of a man making a covenant commitment to a woman, a woman making a covenant commitment to a man before God and before witnesses. This is marriage and sex is supposed to fit inside of those boundaries. So when you're not married and you move in together, whether you're dating or engaged, you're willfully, intentionally doing it. You can't say, I I accidentally moved in. You can't say, I didn't mean for this to happen. 
because you signed a lease. You packed your bags and you packed your boxes and you took the tape and you boxed up your boxes and you put them in your car and you moved them there. That's not to just pick on any one specific person. I'm guessing 550 of us this morning will willfully sin, rebel against God by the time we gather here again next week. It's also accidental rebellion. I didn't mean to. I think about the Apostle Paul and Peter. Um, They had an argument in the scripture, these two pillars of the church. They both preached the gospel to Jewish people and to Gentile people. But there was something in the Jewish people that they looked down on the Gentile people. And even though Jesus had said, no, this is available for everyone, sometimes that prejudice leaked out of them. And when Peter was preaching the gospel of Jesus to the Gentile people, he had no problem being with them and having a relationship with them and eating with them and doing just normal things with them. But there was this one instance when Peter was with those Gentile people doing all those normal things. And then some other Jewish Christians came and suddenly that prejudice began to swell up in Peter and he stopped being around the Gentiles and stuck exclusively to the Jewish people. And the apostle Paul called him out on it. He says, you're preaching this gospel of grace. You're preaching this gospel of openness to everybody. And yet you're not practicing that. Your prejudice is leaking out of you. And I don't, I wasn't there obviously, but I don't think that Peter meant to do that. I think he would have said that was an accident. That wasn't something he was planning on doing. It it just happened, but that doesn't excuse it. Just like when our prejudice leaks out of us. We may say, I didn't mean for it to be like that, but it's still sin. Still rebellion against God. It's also ignorant rebellion against God. There are some times that we don't know. That's why later on in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that if God loves you, you can count on one thing. He's going to discipline you. We usually take it as the opposite. If God disciplines us, corrects us, he doesn't love us. But if you want to be loved by God, which we all do, then we need to understand that he will discipline us because some of us are sinning against him and we just don't know it at the moment. But he's going to give us grace to know what we don't know. And it says that we should lay aside this sin. It's going to be a challenge because it clings so closely. But First Corinthians chapter 10, turn a few pages to the left with me. Let's look at verse 13. It shows us one way that we can lay that sin down. It says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So here's some few things that we can write down today. So how we can lay our sin down. First, we need to know that I am not unique. You are not unique. That's what it says. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me, but I love to be the exception to the rule. In fact, I feel like I am always the exception to the rule. There are rules for other people and I'm glad because I don't trust everybody else. I totally trust myself, which is why We should bend this rule or we should break this rule for me. I don't want to bend or break it for you, but for me, I'm okay with it. We all think that we're the exception to the rule and temptation is no different. How many of us have said, I know this is wrong, but my situation or if just everybody knew my situation or if even God was 
more familiar with my situation, or he does know my situation, so he's going to give me a pass here, or he's going to give me extra grace, or it's not going to be that big of a deal because, well, because it's me, and because it's in this circumstance that I'm in. But the scripture says there's no temptation that has happened to you that has not happened to the person next to you. It's common to all of us. We also need to remember that God is available when we're being tempted. It says, God is faithful. God is not far away from you when you're being tempted. He's available right there to call on his faithfulness. We also need to remember that we do have a choice. It says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You do have the ability to resist that temptation. We do have a choice. When we say to God, I couldn't help it. It's not just not true. We could help it. It is also a statement of disrespect to the character of the father, the sacrifice of the son, and the presence of the spirit. Fourth thing that will help us lay it down is we need to take our first exit ramp. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. I like to think of temptation as a long hallway. And we'll all stand in that hallway, mostly about the same things. And when you're first being tempted, there's always an exit ramp. And that exit ramp is the size of a two-car garage. It's huge. You could drive tanks through it. You could drive trains through it. It usually happens immediately after you start to feel tempted. The conviction of the Holy Spirit, something inside of you says, this is a bad thing. That is your first exit ramp. You travel a little bit down farther down the hallway because most of us do. We wanna kind of linger in the temptation a little bit. We don't wanna give in, but we just wanna stay here for a little bit longer. That door gets a little bit smaller. Now it's a, a double door, still easily able to get out. And yet we don't take it. We resist a little bit longer. I want to stay here a little bit longer. I want to play with fire a little bit longer. Surely it won't burn my life down. And then it's a regular door. The farther you travel down that hallway, the doors get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until they disappear. So this is a good reminder for us today to lay down sin. We need to stop lingering in our temptation and take the first available out. And finally, it won't be easy. Laying down sin is not easy. It says that you may be able to endure it. It would be so great if you were able to pray today, God, take away that desire from me and boom, it's gone. Based on my own personal experience, based on the personal experience of millions and millions of people throughout history, that's not going to happen. You could be the exception to the rule though. It's gonna be hard. To resist, you're going to have to endure the temptation. And why? Because sin clings so closely. It doesn't just go away because we want it to go away, but yet we still have to lay it down. Don't quit. Be free. And finally, don't quit. Look to Jesus. Don't quit. Look to Jesus. Verse 1. And the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When it talks about this race, it's a Greek word, A-G-O-N-A, agona. It's where we get the word agony. So this race that's been set out before us, built into it is a certain amount of agony. It's not going to be easy. That's why we need to be able to resist the desire to quit. We have to endure. And it says it's the race marked out for us. Now, I'm not a runner. I've been very clear about that in all these years. But even I know that if you're signed up to ride, uh, run the Boston Marathon, they don't call you ahead of time and say, how would you like us to lay the course out for you? How many hills do you want in there? Oh, you just want to run downhill the whole time? How many pit stops do you want? They don't ask the runners for advice about how to set the course. The judges set the course. The runners run the course. So lots of us today are running races that we would have not marked out for ourselves. A couple years into our marriage, Amanda and I took a six-month ministry assignment in a small town in England no one's ever heard of. We were going to do some ministry in a church to really re-jumpstart a student ministry among teenagers. When we got there, there were just two teenagers in the church, and it was our job to to, to grow it. And we were excited to do that. I had done some youth ministry here in America and I had read some books. I mean, that's all you need. You need a little experience and you need to read some books. It's fine. You know, everything will go great. And, 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 I, and I had high expectations and dreams. I was going to be the, the great saint of youth ministry after we finished with six months. And we got over there and we met these two teenagers and one of them immediately stopped coming. That was, that was the kind of youth pastor I was. We were down to one. I remember one Sunday, uh, we had a few, we, we grew by, you know, several hundred percent up to seven. <laughs> one Sunday, I decided to, to teach the students uh, how to share their testimony, how to share their faith, you know, so that they would tell their spiritual story and hopefully other people would be compelled by that. And the only girl who showed up that day was not actually a Christian. Uh, she didn't have a testimony. You know how hard it is to teach somebody to share a testimony that they don't have? It's hard. And when we left, there were six or seven students who came. And on top of that, it was harder, I think, than we imagined. So it's hard to live in a country that's not your own. And there was lots of discouragement. There were lots of expectations that people had that we weren't, we didn't know they had, and we were not living up to that. And I think there were so many days when we lived there that we wished it was going some other way, but it wasn't the race that God had set out for us. He had marked out some turns that we would not have marked out for ourselves. So if you're in a situation right now where you would say, this is not what I would have chosen for myself, take confidence. You're probably exactly where God wants you to be. And then it says that we should look to Jesus, who's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He said the same thing about himself in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, when he said that he was the beginning and the end. He is the beginning of our faith. He was in the beginning with God when God chose us before the foundation of the world. And he was in the beginning when he was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he he saw four fishermen and he said, come follow me. And that's what he's been doing ever since. He's been saying to all of us today, come and follow me. And that's what we're doing. And as he ascended into heaven, 
He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is called in the New Testament, the Spirit of Christ. Because that's the thing about following Jesus for those first disciples. They were following Jesus, but they weren't apart from Jesus. He was with them. I think when we think of following Jesus, it's like he's gone on to head to Jerusalem. We're still up north in Galilee. And then he's just sending back random messages to us to try to get us to where he is. But following Jesus is being with Jesus as you're following Jesus. Which is great news today if you're walking through cancer. Because you're following Jesus with Jesus through cancer. And if your marriage is hard today and you're trying to figure out how to forgive and bear with one another and love each other and serve one another, but it's hard. You're following Jesus in your marriage with Jesus. If you feel lonely today, you're not alone in that loneliness. You're following Jesus with Jesus as you feel lonely. He's the founder, the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. So he's using that race that you would not have marked out for yourself to bring you to a place of completeness and wholeness and spiritual maturity. And it tells us to look to him because for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. You know, the the cross, if you were crucified, as a Jewish person, they believed that God had abandoned you. That it was a a surefire sign that God had not blessed you, but in fact cursed you if you were crucified. So there was a great shame in being crucified, but Jesus endured that shame. And then it says he endured the cross. The, The word for crucifixion was a word that they invented. It means out of the cross. That's how painful the cross was. They invented a new word to describe that level of pain, excruciating. I was reading recently about a third century historian who described what it was like to be crucified, but he started with what it was like to be flogged. Remember, Jesus was flogged. Pilate, the Roman governor, had Jesus beaten. And the reason Pilate did that is because Pilate didn't want to kill him. So he said, I'm almost going to kill him so I don't have to kill him. And This third century historian was saying that when you were flogged by a Roman soldier, after they were finished, your veins would be exposed and all of your muscles would be exposed. Even your bowels sometimes would just be out for people to see. And they did this to Jesus. And then they made him carry his own cross. But you remember, he couldn't make it. He needed some help. And the reason that he needed help is because he was bleeding to death. And when you... Your heart senses that it doesn't have enough blood. It starts beating harder and harder and harder and faster because it knows something is wrong, which makes you pass out. And so probably Jesus passed out as he was trying to carry that cross. That's why they pulled Simon out of the crowd to help him get it all the way up to Golgotha. And when they got there, they laid him down on a wooden beam, stretched his arms out. There's some doctors that say when you were crucified, your wingspan would grow six inches immediately from the stretching, which would dislocate your shoulders, which would make it painful to pull yourself up again. And you would need to pull yourself up because the way you died on a cross was that you suffocated to death under your own weight. I mean, sure, you would try to pull yourself up every now and then because the only thing carrying that weight was your two feet 
with a giant spike driven through them. But when you pulled yourself up, all you could feel was your dislocated shoulders. The slow breathing would eventually cause an irregular heartbeat. So doctors think that Jesus knew when he was gonna die because he could feel his heart beating out of rhythm. And that's how he knew to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and it is finished. Jesus did that for the joy set before him. That's how great what was ahead of him was that it helped him endure the pain that was being presented to him. So I don't know what kind of pain is gonna be presented to you. I don't know if there's a day when you come to church and people are picketing us out there. I don't know if there'll be a day when you get here that the police come in and they grab a handful of us and throw us into jail. I don't know if when you get home today, somebody will have stolen everything that you have just because they were annoyed that you gathered in Jesus' name. I don't know if that's what's coming, but whatever is coming, the reward that comes after that is so much better. So we're not gonna quit. We're in this until it's done because Jesus didn't quit. He didn't quit after the flogging. He didn't quit after they stretched out his arms. He didn't quit until it was finished. So we won't either.